Thank you, Paul. Thanks very much indeed. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, can I ask you please to open your Bibles if you have them at Luke 19, verse 41. We're going to read through to the end of the chapter. That's uh, verse 48. And this is a passage of scripture that's describing Jesus and his disciples. And they're approaching uh, Jerusalem and they're going to look down on the city. So verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave, and they will not... There we go. And they will not... No... Go back one. Okay, that's it. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And as he was, uh, and he was teaching uh, daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Right, wow. I've got to tell you, this is a difficult passage of scripture. Um, it, it's not a barrel of laughs. <laughs> I kind of wish I had some humor to throw in here, but this is a difficult pa- passage. Uh, it's a difficult passage because Jesus is talking about a very serious and bluntly terrible moment that's about to come in the life of the nation of Israel. And and he's describing some of these terrible things that are going to happen to the city due to God's judgment that will fall on it. And he's explaining in this passage why those things are going to come. And, And as Jesus is thinking about these things and talking about them, he just weeps. It, he, he just, it breaks him up. And people are going to suffer. And Jesus is just weeping over them. It's a very serious passage. Talking about a very serious thing. And it's, of course it's distressing on one level just to see Jesus weep. But actually it's also really shocking to read about God's judgment that is going to come. And in such a terrible way. So it's a big passage of scripture this. It's also, though, a passage of Scripture that uh, demands that we look at some of the big characteristics of God that I think are shown uh, in these verses. Wow. Something very odd has happened to the technology. Um, I'm going to allow that. There we go. So these are the things we need to look at. We need to look at the compassion and the love of God. I think that's demonstrated in this Scripture. Uh, We need to look at the judgment and the righteousness of God. That's seen very clearly here. And we also need to look at the eternal nature of God. And we're going to do all of that in 25 minutes. So, mm, yes, pray for me now. Okay, well, let's start then uh, with the compassion and the love of God. So I'm going to see how we go. Oh, yeah, I've just put this in. That's a, a picture, actually, of modern-day Jerusalem. I just wanted to give us the feeling that we're with Jesus, we're with the disciples, and we're looking down uh, on the city. 
So what does this passage then tell us with regard to the compassion and the love of God? Well, I think it's really important that we see that Jesus is weeping. And he's weeping wholeheartedly so. Apparently the Greek word here for weep, it means a full sobbing or even a wailing. And that's what Jesus is doing. So Jesus is not a little bit misty-eyed. He's looking down on Jerusalem saying, oh, I'm very fond of the old place. Oh, oh dear, isn't it lovely? No, no, something is tearing at the heart of God here. This is the, this is the creator of the universe. This is the all-powerful one weeping. It's just an extraordinary thing to get your head around. So this very tender-hearted uh, action, this response from Jesus as he's looking down at Jerusalem, tells us, I think, something very key uh, about God. And it tells us this. Jesus doesn't want judgment to come. He really doesn't. He urgently wants a different outcome to the one that he sees is coming. Now, why is that? Because he just cares about people. He just cares about them. I, in fact, earlier in Luke, um, he was lamenting over uh, Jerusalem, really wholeheartedly saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then he says, from this image, he said, I, I, I'm, I, I, I want to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. In other words, I want to protect you. I want to love you. I want to care for you. But you were not willing. See, his instinct here is to love, to care, to protect. That is the heart of God. And he doesn't want them to be destroyed. You know, Jesus said this, didn't he? I have come to give you life and life to the full, not destruction. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He does not want to see these people in this part of the world destroyed. So we're in this extraordinary situation here with Jesus. What God is about to do, and it is his hand, he does not want to do. And it's causing him great anguish. The heart of God is just in turmoil over what's about to happen to this city. And I think it's important that we see that. In fact, this expression of God's love is really rooted in the Old Testament. So the last time the people of Israel were facing a similar kind of judgment was the destruction of the first temple. This, of course, is the second temple with Jesus. 600-odd years ago or so, um, uh, 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 we see that the, the people were facing a similar kind of judgment. And uh, God raises up some prophets to go and speak to them. He raises up, in particular, Amos and then Hosea. And uh, this is what he says through Hosea. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. Do you see the sense of a turmoil in God's heart? And in verse 42 of the passage we've just read in Luke, we see it's exactly the same longing in the heart of Jesus when he says, would that you, even you, so there's emphasis there, uh, would have known on this day the things that make for peace. And Jesus is having a bit of a if-only moment. 
I kind of, I, have you ever had a, an if-only moment? Have you ever done something or said something and thought, if only I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't said that. Or I wish I'd seen that. Or I long to have done it differently. And here is Jesus saying, I so long for you to have responded differently to me. If only, if only you had responded to my offer of life, then we could have avoided this terrible judgment. This passage is telling us that Jesus takes no joy, God takes no joy in judgment and the destruction of sinners. It's really, really not in the heart of God at all. In fact, it's very different as well to the concept of God that I think even today many people have. They see God as angry, uncaring, disinterested, probably in the lives of humans. A few million are wiped out, so what? No, that is not what the scriptures teach us. God is full of love, not wanting uh, judgment to come. Okay, we need to move on now to the second of those things. We need to look now at the judgment of God because this passage is really forcing us to embrace that subject uh, full on. And I think what's particularly shocking about, uh, verse, uh, uh, about this passage is that in, in verse 42, Jesus seems to be saying, there's no way back now. This judgment is coming. He says, the things that would have made for peace and stopped this terrible thing from happening, he says, are now hidden from your eyes. Terrible. We're so used, aren't we, to God bailing us out. We're so used to him saying, okay, I can see you're in a terrible problem. Here's my answer. Okay, uh, do this. And that's what we see in the scriptures, isn't it? God then raises up like a Gideon or someone like that. And then the, the people are rescued. Hurrah! Yet here, terribly, we're in this situation where Jesus is saying, I have given you my rescue plan. And it's my cross. It's believing in me. That's how you make peace with God. It's you ask him to forgive you for your sin. Something that I am willing to do. God is willing to do. And the people of this place have said no. And Jesus is weeping over them. But he is saying there is no other solution. That's it. And the fact that you have said no means the only thing can happen now is judgment will fall on you. Told you it was serious. Okay, and then actually what do we see next? Well, we see almost like a prophetic picture of what Jesus has just done. He goes into the temple and he basically cleans house. That's what he does. He's not willing to tolerate the perversion, the sin, the misuse of this temple. It is the house of God after all. It should be, he says, a thing of where people are prayed for, where there's a blessing to the nations. He said, but you have made it a den of robbers. You've used it for sinful, selfish purposes. And he says, enough, and drives them out. It's almost like a prophetic picture of what God is about to do to Jerusalem. Very, very sobering passage of scripture. So what can we take then from this passage about the judgment of God? What can we learn today? Well, how about this? It's real and it happens. We live in a culture that doesn't like judgment, uh, doesn't want people to kind of face this. 
But, but God does this. God doesn't ignore justice and righteousness. He is very patient, not wanting anyone uh, to be judged. But ultimately, he will do what is right. He will do what is right. Otherwise, he would not be fully God because he is fully just and fully right. I think this passage also, though, is a stark reminder for us all that, you know, there will one day also be a day of judgment for all humanity. The Bible tells us that all humans throughout time will one day, when Jesus returns, will stand before him and be judged. And uh, we read from the Bible that judgment's going to be very different for believers and non-believers. For believers, we are told that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes, thank you. That's better. Some response from the hall. That's excellent. There's no condemnation. In fact, we can expect various degrees of reward. Yeah, which is exciting. And Jesus said, didn't he, uh, if you give a cup of water in my name to someone, you will not fail to receive your reward. In other words, little things that you've done, I think, are rewardable. So there actually could be quite a lot of rewards, uh, who knows, coming our way does also say, though, that if we are genuinely Christians, but we've lived very worldly lives in Corinthians, it says, you will be saved, but you will suffer loss. So escaping, it says, as though through fire. Not quite sure, really, what that means, but it doesn't sound good, does it? Um, tend to be, you tend to get burnt uh, in, in fire. So it's an encouragement, I think, for us to keep on following Christ. As it says, to keep on building on the right foundation. Of Jesus Christ. So that's for believers. For non-believers, the day of judgment is going to be terrible. They will face judgment for their sin, and they will be punished accordingly, the Bible tells us. It means complete and eternal separation from God, which means removal from everything that is good. The Bible uses a, a strong imagery, things like fire and agony and torment to describe hell. And I guess when we look at the destruction of Jerusalem, that's kind of the image that we've got. We've got people who generally have refused Jesus as Messiah and eventually judgment falls on them. I think though we should also just take, as we're looking at this whole subject of judgment, we should also see that God also judges us before this great day of judgment when he returns. He does judging before that as well. Did, did you know that? So, um, for example, in the Bible, we see cities being judged in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see individuals sometimes being judged. People like um, Gehazi, Elijah's servant, he was judged for his greed. Moses, of all people, was judged. He couldn't go into the promised land. And then Ananias and Sapphira, we think of in the New Testament. So, I guess that demands that we ask a question here. What is judgment for Christians before the day of judgment? What is that? Well, the Bible gives us an answer for that. It says judgment for Christians looks like God's discipline. Here in 1 Corinthians it says this, when we are judged, Notice it says when, not if. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there you go. 
God's judgment is the discipline uh, of God. We're also urged in that passage, in that chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, to, to um, judge ourselves. Did you know you were meant to do that? You're meant to judge yourself in order that you would avoid the judgment of God. And it's particularly something we're meant to do before we take communion. Here's just a little one that James 5 talks about that we might like to think about occasionally. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. How about that one? Okay, so the reason God uh, judges us or disciplines us is, of course, because he loves us. The word tells us that God disciplines all whom he loves. So he judges us and he disciplines us because he's a good father. So just before we move on from this particular area, we probably also need to ask this question. What does the discipline of God look like? Is that happening, in fact, to you right now? Are you in a season where God is disciplining you? How would you know? So what does the discipline of God look like? Well, I, I think it can take a number of forms in reality. Uh, I think sometimes it can feel like there is a coolness or a distance between you and God. Or sometimes it can feel like um, your prayers are not being answered. It just feels like they're bouncing off the ceiling. Or sometimes your conscience can feel uncomfortable. And sometimes God will allow periods of suffering in your life. The Bible's really clear about it. Trials and suffering uh, will come into your life. In fact, Hebrews 11, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12 says this, regard all suffering as discipline from the Lord. That's how we should see suffering. So if you're in a difficult period right now, the Bible encourages you to see it as God discipline, God's discipline in, in your life. Now, we are also expected when we are disciplined by God uh, to allow it to do its work in us. The Bible says, do not regard God's discipline lightly. Don't just say, ah, well, you know, who cares? I don't care. We'll just get through this. I'll just, uh, you know, hunker down and get, get through. No, 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 no. The point of discipline is that it's meant to produce change in you. That, it's not God just saying, right, I'm going to inflict pain in you or allow a pain in your life. He's saying, no, no, I want to change you. It says, uh, discipline is never pleasant at the time, the Bible says, but it's meant to produce a harvest of righteousness. So question for you, do you cooperate when you are disciplined? Do you take it lightly? Or do you say, okay, God, I'm in a difficult period in my life. I, I don't know whether this is your discipline or not, but please will you run your fingers through me and if there's anything I can learn from this period, and generally there is from difficult periods, why don't you just ask God to show you what it is you can learn? I was thinking this during the week. Sometimes suffering, is a, we have to pay a high price for it, don't we? Because it hurts, and it can hurt badly sometimes. Yet if we don't handle that right, we'll only come out with low value. We won't allow it to have a, a high spiritual value to us. We'll just, just get through it, really. Why don't we, if we go through a difficult time, decide we're going to make sure that we get high value out of this difficult time? It's a different way of looking 
at suffering, which I hope will mean that we'll use our tough times to get closer to God. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Okay, let's move on to the third section. And it's uh, this one, the eternal nature of God. One of the things we observe about Jesus and this passage is this. He is looking into the future. Uh, We know with the benefit of history and hindsight that he is talking about things that will happen mainly in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple and the city. And we know it happens then. God knows what's going to happen in the future. We've just got to be reminded of that. He knows what's going to happen in your life, all the way throughout your life. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We're trying to think of a a good illustration, and this is the one I've come up with. Most of us are car drivers. We drive cars. And when you're driving a car, you can go forward, or you can go back, or you can go fast, or you can go slow. And unless you're really, really silly, that's pretty much all you'll do uh, in a car. But when you listen to pilots talk, I was listening to one the other day on the telly, he said, um, the sense of freedom you get in, in a plane is amazing, because not only can you go forward and back, fast and slow, but you can go up, and you can go down. You can go, uh, you can fly it upside down if you want. You can barrel, you can go anywhere you like. And they, they, a lot of them talk about this sense of freedom. A pilot has a sense of freedom that most of us will never know. And Jesus, being God, has that freedom of movement throughout time. Uh, and sometimes when we read about him, he just slips into pilot mode. And he, ca- he can leave everyone else a bit confused. So I think Ian mentioned it last week when he said, uh, Jesus said, before a- Abraham, I was. Now, I don't know what they made of that when he said that to him, but I suspect there were some heads being scratched at that point. So you're saying that you existed before Abraham? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And actually, it's really important we understand that because in Luke 21, we're going to look at a chapter where Jesus is going to absolutely slot into pilot mode and he's just going to fly through time and he's going to talk about two, three, four different points in the future. And you're going to have to have your head uh, you know, switched on in order to keep up with Jesus uh, as he's talking about things that have, we know have happened, but actually other things that he spoke about which have not yet happened. So Jesus is slipped into pilot mode in this passage, in the Luke passage, and he is describing what's going to happen to Jerusalem and the people in it. And he says this, your enemies, plural, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave, listen to the detail, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I think it's really important that we unpack that and we just see how historically accurate everything that Jesus has said is. Because we, we know historically what happens in AD 66. There's a rebellion against uh, Rome in Jerusalem. The zealots, who are the kind of revolutionary arm of the Jewish people at that time, they, um, there's uh, something, there's a, some... Uh, one of the Roman governors is accused of stealing money from the temple and it just ignites the whole city 
and uh, basically they turn on the Romans and the Jewish people kick the Romans out. They set up their own government and they take control of a kind of general, a larger area. The Romans, being Romans, don't like that and they respond in the only way that they seem to know how and they decide to come back. A guy called Vespasian comes and he takes back a lot of that territory uh, but the, he's unable to capture Jerusalem. Vespasian then becomes emperor, takes over from Nero, another terrible um, uh, emperor, and he sends, uh, Vespasian sends his son in, the guy called Titus, General Titus. And Titus decides to besiege the city. And he does this during Passover, when the city is full of people. And uh, he just figures that a siege will work faster if there are more people in it, I think. And... Uh, it's really important for us to see. When Jesus said enemies, that's absolutely what happened. It wasn't just the Romans who came. There were the Syrians who came, a traditional enemy of Israel. There were Syrians involved in that, and there were others from uh, uh, now Arab nations that came. Enemies came. And we know that there were th between three and four different legions, Roman legions, that come, and they completely and utterly surround that city. And eventually the Romans break into the city and they're very wound up by this stage because it's taken them far longer than they think as Romans it ought to to have uh, broken in and they go on the rampage and they kill pe huge numbers of people and others are taken into slavery. The temple is set alight and is completely and utterly wrecked and the Jewish uh, historian Josephus says very little could be recognized of that city after that battle doesn't end there though because uh, there are still Jewish people living in uh, Jerusalem and so 59 years after AD 70 in AD 129 another Roman, a guy called Hadrian comes to the city, there's another mighty battle, he kills lots of people and then he commands that any remaining buildings that are still standing should be utterly flattened and removed and he bans the Jewish people from the city and he seeks intentionally to erase all memory of the Jewish people and their connection uh, to the city of Jerusalem. He's the one that also changes the name Judea, which is where the, the city of course is based. He changes it to Palestinia, uh, which is one of his own names. Very humble thing to do, change it, uh, to change it to your own name. And then he forbids all Jewish people to live there. And then he tries to rebuild the city as a Roman city. Jesus said, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. It's really important that we see that what Jesus said in this passage is absolutely right. It means that we can have total confidence in the other things that Jesus said would come just want to end then on this. Maybe you're watching today or you're going to be watching on YouTube at some other time. I just want to say this. Jesus also said this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want to say this to you. Everything in the heart of God is longing for you not to perish. Yet Jesus gave us a clear warning of what would happen 
to those who reject his rescue plan, a way of making peace with God, and that is by having faith in Jesus, in believing in him as the Son of God. The Bible says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth. Just love for you just to ponder this scripture and to take the opportunity while it exists. It's been quite a serious morning this morning, uh, this afternoon, hasn't it? It's been quite a serious preach. Uh, I make no apology for that. That, that is the word of God to us. But we're going to draw uh, the preaching to an end and I'm going to hand you back to Paul.